The American POTUS Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Coming up on this episode of American POTUS, John Quincy Adams. Just like his father, this son of the revolution was smart, ambitious, and literally would not stop fighting until he achieved what he thought was right. His one term in the White House was a bust, but his post-presidency life as a congressman, well, that's where he really made a difference. He was absolutely relentless, taking on slavery, women's rights, and Native American rights. In fact, he pushed so hard, his enemies tried him for treason just to try and shut him up, which thankfully never worked. Old man eloquent John Quincy Adams. He's next on American POTUS. I'm Scott Brun. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. In each episode, we'll tap into our nationwide cabinet of historians, authors, experts, and others to reveal the most compelling moments from these extraordinary patriots. To help us understand the astonishing post-presidency of John Quincy Adams, we're joined by author Joe Whelan. From the Revolutionary Period to the Civil War to World War II, Joe has written several really insightful books. He's a very distinguished, respected, and successful author, and we're thrilled to have him on this show. Joe, thanks for joining us here on American POTUS. Oh, well, thanks for uh, inviting me. I'm pleased to be here. Joe, I'm a real fan of your work. Let's start by talking about John and John Quincy Adams, the only um, one of only two father-son presidential combos in our history. What was their relationship like? Uh, They had a great relationship. Um, John Quincy followed his father's counsel all the time. He was really a good son. He tried to please. And his mother gave him constant advice, too, as uh, they they went along. Even when it pained him, he followed the advice. From the beginning, Adams understood that much was expected of him. Mm-hmm. Both parents urged him to obey his conscience and his maker and to strive continually. His father told him never to waste time. Mm-hmm. He was raised to be a statesman and to do his duty. His father taught him, uh, guided his reading, and taught him algebra, geometry, and trigonometry Mm. when they were in Paris, where uh, John Quincy was his father's personal secretary in 1783. His mother emphasized his moral development. And when he was very young and at home, she gave him a first-rate education because the school in their town, it was called Braintree back Mm. then, had closed, save money uh, to contribute to the revolution. Mm. Uh, the Abigail did a great job educating uh, John Quincy. Um, he he traveled quite a bit with his father, and uh, as you know, he uh, was sent off uh, at the age of oh, what was it, thirteen or fourteen, to accompany. Uh, a uh, diplomat to uh, Russia because mm-hmm. he knew French and uh, he could interpret for him. I can't imagine doing that job as a 13 or 14 13. year old. I could barely, yeah. you know, find my way to the front door. And that's, 
That's a really amazing. I'm, we know that from a very early age following that, he had this whole host of appointments, uh, minister to the Netherlands, Prussia, Russia, England. He was there. He helped negotiate the Treaty of Ghent in the War of 1812. He served as a senator, secretary of state, and president. But he said, Joe, quote, my whole life has been a succession of disappointments, unquote. What, why would he think that? What was behind such a negative appraisal of his many accomplishments? Um, again, I think it was his parents. They drove him to always better himself from a very early age. He was the oldest son. Um, and his mother and father constantly pushed him to accomplish more and to use his talents to his fullest and never be satisfied. So he became a lifelong striver. And even after a lifetime of public service, he never thought he was good enough. His parents had planted these uh, lofty ideals in him from an early age, and he was always reaching for them till the day that he died. Wow. Well, part of his career of service was as Secretary of State, and perhaps he's the most significant Secretary of State we've ever had. Can you explain to our listeners his continued legacy today in the foreign policy establishment? Oh, he was amazing. He was uh, really the... Uh, uh, premier diplomat of his time. Actually, during the first 50 years of the United States, there's no greater diplomat than John Quincy Adams. And so when he became James Monroe's Secretary of State in 1817, there was no one uh, better qualified for the job than him. His career in the Foreign Service began in 1781 when he went with Francis Dane, as I told you, to um, Russia as a translator. And uh, when he returned to Paris, he became very good friends with Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin. And uh, President uh, George Washington was so impressed with his essays back in the early 1790s that he named Adams Minister of the Netherlands at uh, the age of 27, which is remarkable. Yes. And then he went on to become minister of Prussia, Russia, and England. In England is where he met and married uh, his wife, Louisa. And as you said, he negotiated the Treaty of Ghent. And interestingly, while he was minister to Russia, uh, he was there while Napoleon was invading Russia. Mm. And so he, uh, he uh, made a lot of uh, reports on that and observed the fighting. And he accurately predicted the Russians would win. Yeah. He said that they would use a Fabian strategy, which is basically what George Washington used to fight the British, where they, they would avoid uh, major battles, but fight smaller battles where they had an advantage. Mm -hmm. That's what the Russians did. And then under uh, James Monroe, when he was Secretary of State, he reconciled uh, England finally the United States after 40 years. And then he uh, had a major role in drafting the, the Monroe Doctrine. Mm -hmm. the, the, main, the main tenet of that was there'd be no future colonization in the Americans, the Americas, and that was Adams's handiwork. And, he, and while he was there in the State Department, he transformed it into a professional institution. It had been pretty amateurish before, 
but uh, became a lot better when he was there. Still a legacy that that's with us today. And as we talk about the story of John Quincy Adams, so much of that story revolves around the rivalry that developed between Adams and Andrew Jackson. How did that relationship change over time? Well, it began well enough. Um, when Adams was Secretary of State, he supported Jackson's very questionable military campaign in Florida. And then Adams was able to negotiate a treaty uh, with Spain. Spain owned Florida at that time that ceded Florida to the United States. But uh, the relationship went downhill when they uh, met in the 1824 election. Uh, And they were two entirely different people. Uh, Jackson was a populist, uh, sort of semi-educated. Adams was uh, highly educated and very erudite, uh, well-read. But Jackson was a man of the people. Um, So they uh, did not uh, really have anything in common. Uh, Jackson won the popular vote in that election, but didn't have enough electoral votes. Adams finished second. And And it was ironic, just like his father, John Quincy watched the election being decided in the House of Representatives in February 1825. Henry Clay finished fourth, and he threw his support to Adams. And that gave him the electoral votes he needed to win. The uh, Jackson people cried foul over this, said it was a corrupt bargain. Adams and uh, Clay denied it. Even though Adams uh, appointed Clay as Secretary of State, that was a corrupt bargain. Adams said there was no quid pro quo. They had met before Clay uh, threw his votes to Adams, but Adams said they discussed merely whether their principles jibed. So, but this uh, lingered throughout. And after he named Clay as Secretary of State, the war was on. And uh, in retaliation, Jackson supporters blocked Adams's programs. Uh, the big one was called Liberty with Power. It was a big infrastructure program. And the uh, problem was Adams refused to fight for it, and uh, it died, and so did everything else. Uh, so they just flummoxed him. And then Jackson got his revenge in 1828 when he defeated Adams uh, in their uh, the rubber match. So was that ongo- ongoing battle with Jackson supporters the reason he was indeed so unsuccessful in his four years as president? That's probably the main reason. Yeah. 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 He was just uh, blocked at every corner. He might have uh, done better if he'd uh, tried to, uh, if he had tried to uh, make allies in Congress, if he had uh, tried to build a, uh, political apparatus um, to fight back and to prepare to run in 1828. He didn't do any of that stuff. He didn't think that the president should do that. He was from a different time. President proposed things, and then it was up to Congress whether to approve that or disapprove them. After such a difficult four years, we know that he runs for the Congress in 1830, which is the focus of your terrific book. 
after enduring such bitterness during his presidency, why in the world did he want to go back to Washington? Well, I don't think he did originally. Okay. Uh, <laughs> he did not. Uh, when he uh, when he left Washington, and as you know, he did not attend his uh, successor's uh, inauguration, just like his father refused to attend uh, Thomas Jefferson's. Mm-hmm. They were so much alike. But he went back to the Boston area, and in Boston, he got the cold shoulder. No dinners, no honors, nothing. And he was removed as president of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Thought his public life was over. But his neighbors in uh, Quincy or Braintree, they liked him. And in 1830, a movement began to send him to Congress. The incumbent had decided not to seek re-election. And, uh, of course, Adams refused to say he wanted the office because he was from that old school. He would not campaign for it, but his neighbors wanted him to run, and he was in debt. So, and I think he believed it would be a political comeback of sorts, and it was, unlike anything seen before. His, his family was against the idea, but he was elected, and he handily defeated this Jacksonian and a Federalist. And then, uh, after he won, he believed he was beginning a new stage of his life. I think he enjoyed the prospect of having a ringside seat to the battles that Jackson administration would face in Congress, too. I know in Congress he became known as Old Man Eloquent for his passionate attacks on slavery. When did his hatred of slavery begin and how did it evolve? What did he, for instance, say about that topic when he was president? Uh, for a long time, he never said anything about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, but what uh, ignited it was. Uh, during the debates in Congress in 1819 and 1820 over admitting Missouri to the Union as a slave state. And this caused Adams to really think hard about slavery. And in his diary, he expressed his anti-slavery feelings for the first time. He called it the great and foul stain upon the North American Union. But he didn't do anything about it. Uh, He was Secretary of State. He wasn't ready to commit in 1820, and, and the subject, slavery, didn't really come up while he was president. But when he returned to Washington as a congressman, this coincided with the beginning of the abolition movement in the North, which uh, initially began with Quakers uh, filing petitions to abolish slavery and the slave trade in Washington, D.C. Um, and they prevailed on Adams to introduce their petition. And this is the first major action he took when he, re- when he went to Congress, was introducing this petition, which was promptly sla- slapped down. But what really kicked it off was when the House passed the gag rule to prohibit slavery, debate slavery. And that really aroused him. He fervently believed in the constitutional right to petition. Yes and found inventive ways to read anti-slavery petitions over the shouted protests of Southern congressmen. Mm. And uh, his assaults on the gag rule and his defense of the right to petition Congress earned him that nickname, as you said, Old Eloquent. His opponents, however, called him the madman from Massachusetts. (laughs) All right. (laughs) 
So he, he even had to endure a censure trial, if I remember correctly. Um, yes, he did. He had, uh, yeah, over the, it was over the gag rule. He was always fighting it. He was always trying to introduce these petitions. They were pouring into Congress. And at one point, uh, they filled an entire room in the Capitol floor to ceiling, these mm-hmm. petitions. But the Southerners didn't want any of them read. Uh, and they passed this gag rule. Um, in 1836, forbade any discussion of slavery. Its uh, supposed rationale was to restore tranquility to the public mind and stop agitation over slavery. <laughs> it didn't, didn't quite work, yes. <laughs> uh, no, no. And it said that all petitions, memorials, resolutions, anything related to slavery in any way, be laid on the table with no action. Adams wanted petitions referred to a select committee, but they wouldn't do that. So he found these inventive ways to read the petitions from constituents urging abolition. And uh, got to the point where these Southern congressmen would gather around him as he read, and they would just shout at him. Shut him up. Shut up, that old harlequin. And he would continue on. He would say things like, oh, I see where the shoe pinches. (laughs) <laughs> well, we're going to make it pinch harder now. <laughs> so this all led up to a trial uh, where the House tried to censure him, and it was for reading petitions. And the, the petition that he read that kicked it off, final straw, was when he introduced one from Massachusetts calling for the dissolution of the United States. He just read the petition. But then he went on to deliver scathing denunciation of slavery and the slave trade. Mm. The Southerners fumed. And then uh, the next day, they present this century resolutions, accusing him of advocating the destruction of the country. They said it was high treason. Mm. And uh, Adams replied, he said he was just reading a petition in the Constitution and not partisans in Congress define what treason is, by the way. But they put him on trial in the House, and uh, the House was just packed with people to see this, because here he was, uh, son of the Revolution, ex-president, on trial for treason. Um, His two abolitionists helped him prepare his defense, uh, Theodore Weld, Joshua Levin. If the pro-slavery faction had prevailed, uh, Adams would have been expelled from the House. But he spoke in his own defense, which was great. He said, show me where in the Constitution it is a crime to present a petition. And then he went on to verbally uh, lambast the Southerners. (laughs) It went on for like an hour. Yeah. And uh, stung by his attack, and I think a little embarrassed, uh, the author of the censure resolution offered to drop it if Adams would withdraw the Massachusetts resolution about the dissolution of the United States. Of course, Adams declined. And as he uh, kept talking, the Southerners kept filing his motions to table the censure resolution just to stop the attacks. And on the fourth try, that motion carried, and it was over. He was a fighter, that's for sure. Oh, yeah. Charles Dickens happened to be in Washington that week. 
the week after the trial, and he he called Adams a lasting honor to the land that gave him birth. We know that Adams not only took up that anti-slavery cause, but he also spoke out for the rights of women and of Native Americans. How did he come to take on those broader issues of human rights? It was over the slavery issue. He Mm -hmm. presented petitions to Congress from women who uh, were gathering signatures for the American Anti-Slavery Society. And uh, they were routinely tabled. Adams continued to present the petitions, which bore the signatures of many women. And in June 1838, this Maryland uh, congressman proposed limiting women's right to petition after Adams presented a petition from women opposed to the annexation of Texas. The, the congressman, uh, Benjamin Howard of Maryland, said women belonged in the home and not in political life. Adams came to their defense, and he asked, are women to have no opinions or action on subjects relating to the general welfare? said blocking the legal right of women to petition was denying the right of the mind, the soul, and the conscience. And after that, his office uh, was flooded with uh, letters of gratitude from women and gifts, too, hand-knitted mufflers, socks, and hand warmers. A couple of months later, he dressed 500 women at a gathering in Massachusetts as my constituents. And he also challenged the government's Indian removal policy. This really angered the Southerners as much as his assaults on slavery because they wanted the Indians' land. They needed new lands to grow cotton and rice on. Mm-hmm. The cotton especially really exhausted the soil. So they were always looking for new places to grow it. So the government policy under Jackson, Martin Van Buren, was to banish the tribes from Georgia and Alabama. And the Jackson policy, said Adams, was a blot on America's reputation and honor. And he happened to be chairman of the House Committee on Indian Affairs at the time. He strongly opposed efforts to finance the Florida War to wipe out the Seminoles, too. He said the war was among the most heinous sins of this nation. He believed the nation should protect the Indians. But again, he was just completely out of step with uh, the nation at that time, which uh, supported Manifest Destiny. And uh, the public supported removing the Indians from the East. It eventually got so bad, Adams asked to be excused as chairman of the Committee on Indian Affairs. He said he wished to turn his eyes away from this sickening mass of putrefaction. In 1841, Adams took another high-profile anti-slavery role during the landmark Amistad case. Can you remind our uh, listeners of the basics of that case before the Supreme Court and what role uh, John Quincy Adams played? In 1839, uh, that this is where it began. Uh, these 39 Africans were kidnapped from Sierra Leone and sold into slavery in Cuba. And they were going to bring them north to the United States and smuggle them in and uh, sell them to American slaveholders at a 100% profit. But on the way, the uh, slaves killed the Amistad's captain. They tried to return home, but were tricked into sailing up the East Coast to Long Island. 
and they were arrested at Sag Harbor, Harbor by U.S. naval officers. Now, the question was, were they legal Spanish slaves or kidnapped freedmen? Spain had abolished the import of slaves to her colonies in 1820, and um, Cuban slave trader had, had bought the kidnapped Africans for $450 apiece and uh, then bribed Cuban officials into saying, falsely certifying them as Cuban-born. Now, the Van Buren administration was eager to keep the case out of the courts. They wanted to hand the blacks over to the Spanish for trial. There was also the question of uh, Van Buren's re-election campaign in 1840. He was afraid he would lose Southern support if they were if they were freed in the United States. So he was did everything he could, and his administration did make sure that that didn't happen. The trouble was district court ruled the mutineers were born free, and uh, the judge ordered the Van Buren administration to transport them back to Africa. This decision was appealed and it was upheld, then it went to the Supreme Court, which agreed to hear the case in early 1841. It was at that point that Adams became a key member of the defense team and argued uh, the moral implications and and legal, too, of this uh, case. He had not uh, argued for the Supreme Court in 30 years, but he did did a good job. He said the Amistad was engaged in the slave trade. Van Buren administration occupied the ground of utter injustice, he said. He said no large statute applied to the case, only the Declaration of Independence. The Supreme Court ruled the Africans should go free. And uh, the U.S. government refused to transport them home. So the abolitionists raised funds by a ship, provision it, and sail it to Sierra Leone. Um, when Spain demanded reparations, the Senate approved $50,000. But the House killed the proposal after Adams argued against it, and that was his last House speech. As a congressman, he interacted with a number of presidents, and being a former president, what, what were those interactions like with those? And do we know they have much interaction with the young congressman, Abraham Lincoln? Not much, no. Uh, they're, they're 42 years apart in age, and uh, Lincoln was brand new, and um, Adams had been there, been in Congress quite a while. But uh, they, they did agree on the Mexican War. They were both against it. Uh, they both opposed it. And when Adams died, Lincoln represented uh, Illinois on the funeral parade that was held in Washington. But as far as the other presidents, he despised Jackson. Mm, yes. M- among other things, Jackson killed the second bank in the United States, which Adams supported. And then uh, that re-election campaign in 1828 was really ugly, and a lot of uh, mud was slung. So when Jackson died in 1845, Adams said, he was a hero, a murderer, and an adulterer. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> yeah. But other than that. <laughs> other than that, he was just a great man. 
he got along better with Martin Van Buren because actually Van Buren was a pretty slick politician. Adams distrusted them. He said he was a northern man with southern sympathies. And uh, William Henry Harrison died before Adams could interact with him when he became president. But he thought he was uh, amiable and benevolent. And Tyler succeeded Harrison. He was known as the accidental president after Harrison died very soon in his uh, administration. He, he thought Tyler lacked the capacity to be president. He said he was nothing more than a political sectarian of the slave-driving Virginian Jeffersonian school. He could really turn a phrase. Yes, he could. <laughs> he could. <laughs> Just <laughs> like Dad. I yeah, mean, he right. <laughs> definitely reminds you of John Adams. Yes, yes, definitely. And uh, he he did lament uh, James Polk's election because he, he knew that it represented victory of the slavery forces and that Polk meant to annex Texas, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, Adams uh, was strongly opposed. And he had campaigned, actually, in that election for Henry Clay. Mm-hmm. Lost. By the time Adams died in the House Speaker's Chamber, on February the 23rd of 1846, he had become what you called the embodiment of the revolutionary generation. How was his death received by the public, by his friends and his foes? And how would you summarize his legacy today? His uh, death uh, just caused this great outpouring from across the nation. Eulogies, elegies, poems, resolution speeches, newspapers printed selections from his letters, his poems his religious sayings. And his death really affected the nation as no man's passing since the deaths of uh, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson in 1826. On the same day, 4th of July, 50th anniversary of American independence. And Americans, I think they keenly felt the severing of the last personal link between the founding fathers and the, and the current generation. His funeral was a national pageant. It was held in the House chamber, the long procession to the congressional burial ground. From there, his remains were transported to uh, Quincy. And when the funeral train arrived in Boston, streets were jammed, there were tolling bells, minute gun salutes, his body lay in state at Faneuil Hall. His legacy, I think, he was the greatest diplomat of America's first 50 years. Also, no other president except possibly Woodrow Wilson equaled him in scholarship. And few were as religiously devout as Adams. Yeah, he was a champion of the right to petition Congress, throwing off the gag rule, fierce opponent of slavery and an advocate for women, Indians, and other dispossessed people. He lived by the strong principles, shaped by his strict upbringing by his parents. And he didn't flinch from uh, conflict with the prevailing currents of the times, which were totally against, almost completely against the things that he believed in. He was probably the last American politician proudly pronounce himself a man of the whole country and not of any political party. 
And that conviction, probably more than any other, made him a relic of another time when he died. As you tell these stories and things, I mean, it, it sounds just like his dad. I mean, that's the same reputation that his dad had. Yes, yes, he did. You know, he kept a diary for 63 years, which is amazing. Wow. Think about that. <laughs> and uh, I think there are 12 volumes, and that isn't even half of what he wrote. His uh, son went through the whole thing. And he, uh, the really personal stuff he didn't allow to be published. But I don't know. That'll probably happen someday, maybe if there's interest in him. Yeah, he was really a unique president, inspirational, actually, you know. Especially as, you know, we talk about the, the issues of today. I mean, the guy was really ahead of his time. His infrastructure program, he tried to... Uh, Establish a national university, kind of a science foundation, an observatory. He really believed in science. And uh, when he was Secretary of State, he spent a whole summer researching what system the United States should be on. Should it go to uh, the metric system? Oh, yeah. Or, yeah. And he, uh, he wrote this paper. He, he had researched all the uh, systems and basically, that he could out there in the world. And he decided that the metric system that Napoleon had initiated in France was the way to go. He wrote this long piece and uh, sent it over to Congress, and they buried it. <laughs> yeah, he spent a whole summer on it. It could have been fixed way back then. It, it could have. <laughs> the next time it came up was with Jimmy Carter, yeah. Joe, it's time for some personal questions about POTUS number six. Here we go. This okay. guy, this guy's a trip too. I, I'm, I'm really excited <laughs> to talk about these. This guy, he was the ultimate world traveler, beginning at just ten years old when he went to Europe with his pop. How many languages did he speak? He was, he was fluent in six, but he was able to read and write seven others besides that. So thirteen altogether. He was, he was amazing. He was so well-traveled. And when he was in uh, Paris with his father, he uh, picked up a lot of a lot of it. He became very fluent in French. And then uh, in the Netherlands, he learned Dutch. And then he learned Russian. Then he learned German. It just went yeah. on and on. And Latin and Greek. And he was very impressive. He was quite the scholar. I'm still trying to learn, learn, Engl learn, see? <laughs> see? learn <That's> English. <laughs> <laughs> You'll get there, Scott. You'll get there. So John Quincy was very famous for skinny dipping in the Potomac, keeping a pet alligator in the White House. The man, he had some quirky hobbies, to say the least. So my question, though, were these a big deal while he was president, or are we just more aware of them today? Oh, I think uh, we were just more aware of them today. I don't think his habits were widely known at the time. Uh, his uh, president's personal life was not so much under a spotlight in those days. But imagine, you know, as a president, he walked alone for an hour every morning from the White House down to Georgetown and back, and no one was with him. He had no escort, no guards, nothing. It was just him. And it was the same when he walked down to the Potomac to swim. He's often by himself, wore black cap, green goggles, <laughs> often swam nude, cry. <laughs> There, there's a story, though, about this uh, female journalist 
she wanted to get the story on this. So she claimed to have sat on his clothing on the riverbank waiting for him to return. <laughs> and that with the price, the price of his clothing's return was an interview. Mm. Now, whether or not this is true, it's an interesting story. Anyway. He would get arrested today. Yeah. You want to know about the alligator, too. Yeah. That, yeah, that's a true story. The Marquis de Lafayette. He came back to the United States, he toured the United States in 1824 and 1825. And when he was in the South, someone gave him an alligator as a gift. As <laughs> and when he, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just what you need. And when he reached the White House, he still had the alligator. Adams agreed to take it off his hands. <laughs> and it lived in a White House bathtub for a short time before it was, I don't know, whatever happened to it, either released or disposed of. So that, that was kind of a quirky thing. And, but, you know, Thomas Jefferson had a, had a pet uh, bird, uh, walked around the White House all the time, followed him everywhere. He had the wings clipped, so it had to walk. Oh, jeez. Um, yeah, it was a mockingbird. We could do a I whole think, episode on White House pets. We could. We should, oh, yeah. yeah, you could. Like Theodore yeah. Roosevelt would yeah. be a whole segment. Well, Andrew Jackson had oh. the parrot that cursed at his funeral, remember? Oh, they yeah. Had to put him away, yeah. yeah. Not put him away, but you know. Yeah, Ma- make him Roosevelt. leave the room. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't bring up Andrew Jackson in our John Quincy Adams I know, episode. it's very upsetting, I know. <laughs> Joe, he was the first president... Believe it or not, I thought this was interesting. He was the first president to have his photo taken in 1843. So do you think he would be a social media user if it was around <laughs> in his time? Would he be taking selfies? I, I can't picture that. <laughs> uh, he, uh, with his distaste for self-promotion, I doubt it. And given his principles, he was always striving to be modest so I, I think it was likely he would have disdained social media and selfies <laughs> and all that stuff, probably. Yeah, he doesn't uh, seem like the type. No. Nah. So my final question, it's a little ironic to me that a guy who didn't know how to retire is responsible for the capital of retirement, Florida. <laughs> <laughs> so what was it that pushed him to never give up, always working toward another achievement of some sort? What was it? What was what drove him? I think it was his upbringing by Abigail and John. And because of that, it seemed like he was incapable of relaxing. He spurred himself on, put in his time on earth to good use in the service of others if possible. And that's what he had been uh, brought up to do. So he, he really was a relic of the 18th century when um, principles, self-discipline, Restraint, good morals were the were the lodestars, and that I believe that's uh, about what you would have to say about him. His parents just inculcated those uh, ideas into him. He was the oldest son, and uh, some of his uh, the letters from Abigail were like from the Spartan mother. You know, do yourself proud, do us all proud, and if if you disgrace us you know, basically be brought home on your shield. You know? <laughs> and finally, Joe, in just one sentence, can you summarize his very contentious post-presidential years? Well, I would say he fought the good fight as he saw it until his last breath, literally, when he got up in the house to speak out against uh, Mexican war. 
and then collapsed. And he defended the dispossessed, fighting slavery, and upholding the Constitution. Um, I would say those were the things that you would uh, best remember about him when he was in Congress after his presidency. Quite a legacy, quite a man, and what a family. Really been a fascinating yeah. discussion. Joe, what are you working on right now? Oh, uh, I've moved on to the 20th century, and I've been writing about World War II uh-huh. in the Pacific. Interesting. Uh, I'm writing a book about the uh, Battle of Peleliu. I've written books about Guadalcanal and Okinawa, and I'm on Peleliu. But after uh, researching John Quincy Adams, I kind of like to get back into that somehow. Yeah, I was so impressed by him. Yeah. He's an inspiring man. He really is. Yeah, I feel like I knew a little bit about him, but th- this has been fascinating. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm a new fan. <laughs> well, Joe, thank you so much for a great discussion. Thank you for joining us on American POTUS. No, thanks for inviting me. I've enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the American POTUS podcast. If you have a moment, please rate and review this show on the player you're listening to right now. We appreciate every word from everyone that listens to and participates in the podcast. We'd like to thank author Joe Whelan for joining us on this episode about POTUS number six. More information on all of his books, along with all our other wonderful experts, can be found on AmericanPOTUS.com. While you're there on our website, drop us a note. We'd love to see your questions or comments on this episode or suggestions you might have for future topics. And if you haven't already, be sure to follow or like us on Facebook or Twitter so you'll be the first to know about new episodes and announcements. Graphic design for American POTUS is by The Thought Bureau, an original music score by Jonathan Clark Music. Finally, it's our presidential last word from John Quincy Adams, quote, From the experience of the past, we derive instructive lessons for the future.